Welcome to Red Pill Torah, calling believers from man's institutions to God's instructions. At the time of this recording, one of the great celebrations of the Father's Covenant people is approaching. I'm Tim. And I'm Miss. And if you've ever read the book of Esther to the very end, you know the celebration is called Purim. Today we want to talk about Purim and its connection to the first commandment or word spoken by Elohim from Mount Sinai. Now, for our listeners, you can email us at redpiltorah at gmail.com, follow us on redpiltorah.podbean.com, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Google Play. We really love to hear from you. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. To our friends in Texas and the United Kingdom, shalom, and thanks for listening. Amen. So, it's almost time for Purim. Growing up in the church, we learned the story of Purim, but we didn't know it by that name, and we did not acknowledge it as a holiday. Now, it's a great story, full of great meaning, and the hero is a beautiful covenant woman, just like you, Mama. Oh, thanks, Daddy. You're the best. Now, how am I supposed to segue from that? Mm. Well, okay. Okay. For those who have not read the book of Esther... Let me start by paraphrasing the story. Long ago, there was a king named Ahasuerus. His kingdom was huge, spanning from India to Ethiopia. In the third year of his reign, he had a feast. At some point during this really long feast, he commanded that his queen come out and show her beauty to a special guest. She refused, and because she did, he decided to replace her. Something akin to a beauty pageant was arranged so the king could choose a replacement queen. And after a year of preparation, these many women that he had to choose from, he chose a woman named Hadassah, which is her Hebrew name, but we know her as Esther. This Persian queen was a Hebrew of Hebrew descent, but no one in the king's service, including the king, knew it. No one but her uncle, Mordecai. Hadassah's uncle spent a lot of time at the king's gate because he wanted to be sure that Hadassah or Esther was okay. Now one day, while waiting there, he overheard two of the king's chamberlains plotting to kill the king. He sent word to Esther, and she informed the guards, thus saving the king's life. Because of his loyalty, Mordecai's act was documented in the king's royal chronicles. Now, there was also another man in the king's service named Haman. The king had given Haman great status in the kingdom, but Haman did not like Mordecai because Mordecai would not bow to him like the other subjects would. When Haman found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he decided to kill Mordecai and all of the Jews throughout the whole kingdom. Mm. To determine when to do it, he cast poor, or lots. Poor are kind of like dice in that they can be used to randomly arrive at some answer. So when he casted them, it landed on the twelfth month, Adar, and the thirteenth day. This casting of poor happened during the first month of the year. The plural form of the word poor is Purim. To put his evil plan in place, 
Haman told King Ahasuerus that there were people dispersed throughout his kingdom who kept their own laws and not the king's laws. Because he painted them as enemies of the king, Haman offered to pay the king to let him destroy these people. The king agreed and Haman's command to kill and plunder all the Jews throughout the realm on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar was written and sent to every province in the kingdom. When Mordecai saw the decree, he reached out to Esther and asked her to save her people from certain death. She resolved to go and petition the king on her people's behalf after fasting and praying for three days. On the third day, Esther went to the king. He asked her what she wanted, and she invited him and Haman to a lavish dinner. When they arrived, instead of ratting out Haman and his evil plan, she invited the king and Haman to another dinner the next day. Haman, hearing that he had been invited to another private dinner with the king and queen, was feeling really good about himself. However, he was further enraged because Mordecai was still not bowing or showing respect to him, even after threatening to kill all the Jews on the 13th of Adar. And after receiving advice from his family and friends about Mordecai's uh, insubordination, Haman had gallows built to hang him on, and he went to the king to get permission. However, prior to Haman's arrival, the king was reminded that he hadn't done anything to reward Mordecai for saving his life. And before Haman could tell the king his request, the king instructed Haman to have Mordecai honored in the most lavish way possible. So instead of killing Mordecai, Haman had to dress Mordecai up in the king's royal robes, set him on the king's personal horse, and lead Mordecai through the town square shouting, this is the way the king treats those he wants to honor. Of course, he was not happy about having to do that. And to make matters worse, immediately after that, he had to go to the dinner with the queen and king. It is at this dinner that Esther revealed to the king Haman's plot to kill her and her family with this recent decree. Now, of course, that didn't set too well with the king who had Haman removed and hung on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Wow. Moreover, he allowed Esther and Mordecai to write a new decree, allowing the Jews to fight against anyone who tried to attack them and to kill and plunder their enemies on the same day that Haman had decreed to have the Jews killed and plundered. Now, this new decree made all the Jews really happy and all the enemies of the Jews were terrified. I bet. Now, since we're celebrating Purim, it should go, to, go without saying that the Jews were successful in defeating their enemies on the 13th day of Adar. And on the 14th day, they celebrated. So the king allowed Queen Esther to send out another decree that the 13th and 14th days of Purim should be remembered and celebrated every year throughout all their generations. Well, that's a great summary, Mama. But please clarify for our listeners, why celebrate Purim since it's not one of the appointed times and we're not Jewish? 
Well, Purim represents a time in history when our Elohim used people, in this case, Queen Esther, King Ahasuerus, and Mordecai, to achieve his will. His will was preserving the tribe of Israel, or the tribe of Judah, from being exterminated. Remember, Yeshua came from the tribe of Judah. Second, it's an opportunity to introduce Christian believers to our Jewish brothers' celebrations. We can show solidarity with them, and it also gives us an opportunity to share about the ministry of Yeshua. Thirdly, there is no prohibition for remembering and celebrating something wonderful that our Elohim has done. So what do you say? Well, I say let's find a Purim celebration and join in. The great deliverance celebrated at Purim shows our Elohim's faithfulness to his covenants regardless of the odds. Mm -hmm. He can deliver his people using whatever and whoever he chooses to use. The common theme between Purim and the first commandment is deliverance, by the way. Hey, did you like that segue to the next topic? Not bad, Daddy. And I get the connection. The first commandment, or the first word, says, I am Jehovah Eloheka, your Elohim, who brought you out, or delivered you, from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm sure many Christians would not identify this as the first word or first commandment. On the surface, it doesn't seem to be telling us to do anything. This statement is full of power and meaning, though, to Israel then and to us now. And I love that his first statement is affirming who Elohim is to Israel. Yeah, I love that too, miss. Let there be no doubt about who delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, contains the famous I will statements of Elohim to Israel. We use a condensed version of these statements during our Passover celebrations. We now know that these I will statements are Elohim's declaration of his intentions concerning Israel. They are covenant statements. He declared that he would bring Israel out from under the burden of the Egyptians, rid Israel of Egypt's bondage, redeem or purchase Israel with a stretched out arm, take Israel to himself for people. He would be Elohim or God to Israel. He would bring Israel to the land he promised to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and he would give Israel the land as a heritage. Now, because we know the rest of the story, we know that Elohim did everything he said he would do. At the time of this first word from Jehovah, he made it clear that he delivered on the first three I wills. The rest was in the bank, as we say. That means that they were as good as done. And because believers are grafted in to the covenants of Jehovah, we can and must identify with Israel when we read this, he is Jehovah, Eloheka, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Realize that this is true in a historic sense and in a spiritual sense. 
Egypt represents the oppression of sin to believers. The Elohim who delivered you from Egypt is the same Elohim who delivered you from slavery to sin. Too many Christians fail to embrace the deliverance of Elohim as something personal to them when they read the Ten Words. Not recognizing this as the first commandment or word may cause them to miss, miss this opportunity to connect personally with his deliverance and with his covenant people, Israel. Our Elohim does not identify himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here. He identifies himself as your Elohim. If anyone does not acknowledge Jehovah as Elohecha, or your God, that person has no connection to the rest of the Ten Words. What would be the reason to know the rest of the Ten Words, let alone obey them, if he is not Elohecha, your God? For too long, churches have wrongly emphasized freedom from, quote, the law, accusing our Messiah of doing exactly what he plainly said he did not come to do, abolish the law. So what would you do if you discovered that the way you live your life and some of your beliefs were out of line with God's instructions? Would you take the blue pill and live a lawless life, or would you take the red pill and study to understand the truth of the Bible? Why would you, being free from the law, knowingly restrain yourself from breaking some of its precepts, you know, like stealing, murder, adultery, for example? And if you don't live according to Jehovah's instructions, how, how can he be your Elohecha, or your God, to you? The scriptures have so many instructions directly from Elohim, accompanied by the words, I am the Lord your God. It is as if he's saying, do this because I said so, and because of who I am to you. You will find examples in Leviticus, chapter 11, verse 44, Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 4, Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 21, Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 3, and Numbers, chapter 15, verse 41. How many parents say to their children to do what I say because I said so? If we, being human parents, expect our children to follow our instructions, because we said so, how much more should the Creator expect that from us? Well, that depends on whether or not He is Elohecha, or your God. Now, to our listeners, we really urge you to examine yourselves and be sure that Elohim is Elohecha to you, personally. Make it your life's mission to know what He instructed you to do, and do it. Read His Word for yourself. Do not be content with any person's teachings without doing the Berean thing, searching the scriptures for yourself. Mama, by the way, you were on a roll in this podcast. Well, that's all the roll we have time for today. Please go back and listen again to what we've shared. Read over the scriptures and discuss them with your family and friends. Join us next podcast for more of the same. And thank you for spending 15 or so minutes with us at Red Pill Tour, where you You can can handle the truth. truth.